If you've been following events in India lately, you probably get it that it's been hard times for Muslims in India right now. They're putting up with vilification, discrimination, violence, and even repeated calls to literally wipe them out. So why is this happening in the world's biggest democracy, and who's behind it? Hello everyone, I'm Sami Zaydan, and welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. I want to share with you some of what Muslims in India are facing. Here's what came out of a meeting of right-wing Hindu religious leaders and activists late last year in the city of Haridwar. This story is from the Indian city of Haridwar. Last week, it hosted a conference of religious leaders. A short video has emerged from that meeting. I'm sure some of you have seen it on social media. It's vile, it's hateful, it is outrageous. It has no place in a civilized society, certainly not on our broadcast. There were a lot of threats made in that video, a lot of chest thumping. I will not go into the specifics, but I will tell you the gist. This video was basically a call to unleash genocide on Muslims to ethnically cleanse India's Muslim population. You won't need swords to kill Muslims, because swords won't be enough to kill them. You'll have to evolve in your technique. They have better weapons than you. You can't defend yourself without weapons. If you want to defend your religion, I'll pick up where I left off earlier. And here's the scene where a right-wing Hindu mob surrounds a mosque. You may wonder, and rightly so, where's the government? Where's the police? Why aren't they stopping attacks, incitement to violence and hate speech against the world's third largest Muslim population? You need to meet India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi. He and his far-right Hindu nationalist party, the BJP, are bent on creating a lost Hindu kingdom. They call it the Hindu Rashtra. They've been in office since 2014, openly championing Hindu nationalist supremacist ideology. Scholars are now literally warning about genocide there. All right, let's start our chat with our guest now. Hello, I'm Salil Shetty. I'm currently joining you from London. And I've been working for the last three years as a researcher at Harvard University. Good to have you with us. All right, what's going on in India? Why is there incitement and violence against Muslims and minorities? Well, you know, firstly, we have to be clear that uh, while this is not a new problem, it it goes back to very, very many decades. And the partition of India was based on the you know hindu muslim divide when I mean, pakistan and india were made two nations when the british left but um right now if you if you talk about the growing violence i think that would be true because from all accounts we that's what we're hearing but there's no official records to this you know the national crime records bureau stopped publishing data from 2017 there was attempts by a major newspaper to start a hate tracker that was shut down the editor was pushed out similarly there was another effort by india spent that was also stopped so we don't have any official records to show it's growing but perception certainly and reporting is suggesting it's increasing right there is a lot of history but it started to ink well started maybe wrong way. it seems like it's increased since the bjp came to power yeah i mean the the stats are an interesting question has it increased or not i think 
from all accounts, it looks like it's increasing, the attack on Muslims, the attack on lower caste, the attack on women. But we have something called the National Crime Records Bureau, but they have completely stopped publishing information since 2017. So there was a kind of a hate crimes tracker effort by Hindustan Times, a major newspaper, but that the editor had was sacked and that was stopped. So, uh, and another one from India spent three efforts have been made. All have been now completely stopped. So we don't have hard data, but certainly it looks like there's an increase. Interesting. That in itself is telling that they don't want to keep the numbers anymore. No, and it's not only about this. I mean, there's lots of numbers which are inconvenient, which are not being published anymore. Right. But yeah, so Sammy, you asked us to why is it increasing? And I, I would say that, you know, we are in a very kind of a vicious circle because the BJP, which is currently in power, the party in power is kind of a Hindu uh, nationalist party, right? So in order for them to both get power through the electoral process and to stay in power, it's almost a requirement that they have to keep their base happy and their base is uh, kind of the Hindu majority and upper caste group. And so the, the only way that we can create a kind of a Hindu force is by attacking Muslims. Because don't forget that the Hindus traditionally, historically are deeply divided along caste lines. And a lot of people in the world don't understand what caste is. But it is a way in which Indian society is organized by occupation in a hierarchical way. So if you want to get Hindus together, you have to attack somebody. And of course, in India, it's the Muslims. Not a huge surprise, I guess, or it shouldn't be. Finding politics at the heart of sometimes problems and politicians making capital out of it. Many local and international rights groups, they're saying the rise in anti-minority, anti-Muslim sentiment is linked to the rise of Hindu nationalist movements which aim to establish a Hindu nation. The Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, or the RSS, calls itself a social and cultural organization. Set up in 1925, it has espoused the cause of a Hindu nationalist agenda known as Hindutva. Over the years, its many affiliated organizations share their hostility to minorities, especially Muslims. Let's break this down for listeners, right? There is a powerful right-wing Hindu supremacist movement in India called the RSS, which promotes the ideology of Hindutva. Explain that ideology to us, would you? So the RSS is the group which uh, killed Mahatma Gandhi. Most of your listeners would know of because India was so much associated in 1948 with Gandhi who helped to kind of lead the freedom struggle against the British. And the reason the RSS, an RSS activist killed him was because they felt that he was being too soft on Muslims. So it's a hundred year old organization. As you know, the kind of the attack on Muslims, the Islamophobia phenomenon is not just an Indian phenomenon, it's happening in many places. But what is distinctive about India is that it's backed up by a massive social movement with uh, tens of millions of members. They're almost a paramilitary group. They're, they're trained in arms and, and they have a very clear ideology that they want to create a kind of a Hindu world order which is kind of governed by Hindus and, they, it's, and India being a Hindu state is their idea of the future. Now, the RSS has been accused of stoking anti-Muslim pogroms, assassinations, attacks, but here's something that maybe not all listeners know. The current Indian Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, 
He was a long-time organizer in the RSS, right? There is no real difference between the RSS and the BJP. The RSS is one of many front organizations that are part of this Hindu nationalist kind of uh, superstructure. And um, yeah, I mean, ultimately they call the shots. I mean, so the BJP is the political arm of the RSS. And um, yeah, I, I don't think anybody in the BJP can really take many decisions which are outside of what the RSS would want. So yeah, Prime Minister Modi as a long-term kind of frontline worker for the RSS and grew into becoming an RSS leader and has then moved into the political side. And I guess that kind of then maybe explains some of the appointments which Modi made. Like in 2017, he appointed Yogi Adityanath to be the chief minister of India's third largest state, Uttar Pradesh. Adityanath is a monk who had started a youth group which was accused of vigilante violence. And interestingly, he himself caused a controversy in 2019 when he used the term green virus. This kind of tells us something about the leadership of the BGP's thinking, right? This kind of dog whistle politics is really what is the basis on which the BJP gets its vote. So, I mean, they call refugees coming into India as termites because they're mostly Muslims. All sorts of language is used on a daily basis. So, and we have a range of actors. So you have some of these extreme kind of, you know, the, <laughs> the language is, extremist language is used systematically and selectively by some people from the BJP, whereas the Prime Minister, the Home Minister, etc., they, they are more measured. But as it gets closer to elections, then it gloves off. They start using language which is not dissimilar. But the important thing is that even when they're extreme kind of dog whistle politicians say things like termite and what you just mentioned, the virus, etc., the Prime Minister or the Home Minister will never say anything against it. I mean, those are clearly hate crime statements and there should be action taken, but nothing ever happens. Now, let me be devil's advocate for a moment and say, well, let's speak to the other side. When Modi got re-elected in 2019, he did call on newly elected MPs to be responsible. He gave some assurances. He said we should work together. We should end the perception and fears that minorities lived under. Did that do anything to help the status and fears and concerns of minorities and Muslims? There's no week in, in the year, or no day in a week in India where there is no uh, provocative statement being made, not just statements, but actions by BJP leaders, by these Hindu fundamentalist leaders. Um, I mean, right now, as you know, they're finding mosques and keep saying that underneath this mosque, there used to be a temple. This happened with the famous Ayodhya case. Right now, there's a Gyanwapi mosque in Varanasi, which is where the prime minister is elected from. There's the hijab issue. I mean, every two weeks, every week, there's a new thing. So to suggest that, you know, uh, things have changed would be completely wrong. I think most Muslims live uh, today in fear and anger. And, and it's a very scary thing, Sammy. You know, we have almost 200 million Muslims. Uh, vast majority of them are young and a very significant number of them come from very poor families. So, you know, and Indian Muslims are not typically very radicalized, so to speak. Uh, but, you know, you're really kind of, it's a tinderbox. You know, you're constantly provoking this and it's really hard to predict where this will end up. And that's what they want. They want angry young Muslims to take some kind of radical action to prove that, see, we told you so, you know, this is what Muslims are like. Right. 
Well, you've probably heard about Rana Ayub, right? She's an Indian Muslim journalist. She infiltrated the rank and file of the ruling BJP and wrote a book called The Gujarat Files, exposing what she sees as the hate and even genocidal talk of senior members of the Modi party. She was vilified, arrested and harassed. Here's what she said in a speech at the International Journalism Festival in April 2022 where the Prime Minister of India himself issues dog whistle against the Muslim community. Yesterday, a Hindu priest in front of a massive crowd asked the crowd to rape and abduct Muslim women. And cops were present and they didn't do a thing. This is everyday life for each one of us. When you listen to statements like that, definitely Muslims feel targeted, right? Oh, there's no question about that. I mean, most Muslims are living in fear. Elite Muslims who are relatively small in number, small proportion, have moved you know, some of their resources outside the country, have plans to move out of the country when they can. But since the vast majority of the Muslims are poor, they have to stay and deal with this. And unfortunately, you know, they live on a day-to-day basis in, in the slums in India, in rural parts of India. And they live alongside lower caste Hindus who actually don't even share a lot of the sentiment. So this is a real paradox in the country that it makes it sound like all Indians are against Muslims. And that's simply not true. Right. Salil, is this being institutionalized now in the last few years? Because when we look at things like what the government managed to do in 2019, got Parliament to pass that citizen amendment bill, which basically discriminates against Muslims and non-Muslims when it comes to granting citizenship and amnesty. That was by by any standards. It, it doesn't meet any international legal standards, those kind of bills. Uh, they backed off into completely implementing the Citizenship Amendment Act, but they keep saying that next time there's an election, they're going to bring it back again. And that was started on the basis of what happened in Assam in the Northeast, but it's an All India Bill, which will become effective. But is it institutionalized? Without question. I mean, they control state power now. So I would say that all the major institutions of the state, which are meant to keep India democratic, whether it's the media, whether it is the judiciary, whether it's the parliament, all the checks and balances have all been infiltrated. So you have RSS people in the civil service, even academic institutions are now filled with people who subscribe to this kind of ideology. Right. Should we see the recent ban on hijab in the classrooms in states like Karnataka, which the BJP rule, should we see in that light as well? I'm, by the way, from Karnataka and the place where the actual hijab, the initial school which did not allow the girls to come in because they were wearing hijab, is from my district, very close to my village, really. Oh, wow. So you can speak from personal experience then as well as from a sort of academic one, yeah? Uh, No question. This is my kind of lived reality. And it's a part of the country where we didn't have this kind of, you know, hatred. It's a a part of the country where you have Christians, Muslims, Hindus living together for, for centuries. And the reason why they launched that hijab controversy in Karnataka was because the Uttar Pradesh, which is the state you mentioned earlier, it's the largest state in the country, was going into elections. So they triggered that there. And Karnataka itself is going into elections next year. So, you know, it's already to build their base, the kind of Hindu vote base. We talked a little bit earlier about Rana Ayub. Well, her warnings are not only about discrimination. 
the world is silent about what's happening in india you cannot afford to ignore what's happening in india the muslims in this country are at the cusp of a genocide and none of the journalists can afford to look away and if you look away each one of us in the world are complicit in it that's quite a worrying thought how real is that fear it is real because we have a situation where if you're a dissenter if you don't agree with the ideology of this government if you ask questions about the way in which they operate if you're critical of their actions then you are under attack there's no question about it so they've amended laws like the UAPA which is a draconian law which basically means you're guilty until proven innocent and and the UAPA and sedition laws of many colonial laws are being used excessively against dissenters in general but particularly against muslim youth and this is a reality so i would say that it's a scary situation and people often forget you know that because india is considered a democracy because it has elections people forget that democracy is more than elections i mean if you don't have the basic checks and balances not just minority rights but basic checks and balances like independent media independent judiciary etc then you can't be called a democracy and india always prides itself as different from china and pakistan etc but we are sliding down a very dangerous path i'm glad you mentioned that because you got to then ask where is the world right when you hear the us president joe biden talk about defending human rights at that tokyo quad summit in may and prime minister modi it's wonderful to see you again in person Thank you for your continuing commitment to making sure democracies deliver because that's what this is about democracies versus autocracies human rights must always be defended regardless of where they're violated in the world and he even thanked India's prime minister for delivering on democracy you've got to wonder is he aware of what's happening in India is he aware of what some of the people in the modi government are saying they are very <laughs> completely aware i mean the united states commission on religious freedom just a month ago declared india a country of particular concern for second or third year running so it's not that they don't know so is the world turning a blind eye and world powers are turning a blind eye and how does that so i mean the way this working right now is that you have india's one of the few countries which you can say is a large country which at least holds elections they want india to be used as a kind of a counterpoint to china and of course india is a huge market so the trade interests so the western powers which often have serious double standards anyway when it comes to human rights india is a classic case where they will not speak up and it almost doesn't matter whether trump is in power or biden's power it's interesting that you mentioned democracy is more than just elections because Democracy watchdogs like Sweden's Vdem Institute again this year listed India as an electoral autocracy backsliding on democracy. No, it's not just Vdem. I mean, Freedom House Index uh, year after year there's been a dramatic uh, fall in our ranking and uh, you know, most recently you saw that it was World Press Freedom Day. and again we we i think fell by almost 12 places even the us report on international religious freedom says in 2021 that the conditions have worsened in india to give the full picture about the us position as well 
Yeah. And the classic response is to say this is some foreign conspiracy and index after index or independent body after independent body is telling us that there's a problem. And we can't do this whataboutry. But what about Pakistan? What about this? I mean, we claim to be a democracy. We have to at least, mm. we have to stop being in denial. We have to acknowledge and face facts and, and find ways of tackling this. The BJP would argue and say, hey, we have Muslim members in our ranks. You can't possibly accuse us of discrimination. How do we explain that? I wish that was true, Sami. I mean, this is one of the biggest paradoxes. It's a kind of tragedy that in 2014, which is when the first time they came to power in 2019 again, they forget about having Muslim members of parliament elected representatives. They don't even give them a ticket to contest the election. So obviously, if you don't even give a Muslim a ticket, how are you going to have a member of parliament? So in 2014, there was not a single Muslim MP from the BJP. And as far as I know, in 2019 also, they don't have a single Muslim representative in the elected house. Of course, they have some token Muslims who they bring in through nominated processes, but they have no power. They're not in any decision-making position in the party that I'm aware of. And here I must say, it's not like the other political parties are much better. Muslims generally are marginalized. So it's kind of very odd that we have a situation where there's appeasement of minorities is the accusation. But the fact is, they are at the bottom of the pile. Here's a warning from the man who predicted the genocide in Rwanda, Gregory Stanton, the founding president of Genocide Watch, an alliance of 90 organizations around the world focused on preventing genocide. The Genocide Watch model of genocide process, which is the 10 stages of genocide, I should really have called them the 10 processes of genocide, begins with classification. It begins with trying to exclude people from citizenship. It also includes dehumanization, calling people terrorists or separatists or criminals or the kinds of language that was used in the meeting in Hardwar and that has been used by the Indian government also against Muslims. So we're warning that genocide could very well happen in India all right, Salil, what's the solution here? What can the international community do, for example? Yeah, I think that's a very important question. First and foremost, it's the people of India who have to act on this. And there is no future for the country if there's high levels of insecurity, there's this level of toxicity. It's going to affect security, it's going to affect the economy, it's going to affect society as a whole. So the people of India have to wake up and bring about change. But the international community, so-called international community, which is most importantly the Western powers, have to stop looking the other way. I think they have to call a spade a spade. The one thing, Sammy, I should add, the usual accusation is going to be that what are you sitting outside and expecting from foreign intervention on this? So I think it'll be good for me to make a statement that, you know, the change has to come from inside. But people watching from outside can't be silent about this. And we should be honest, even other Muslim countries, Arab countries, they're not taking a very clear and strong stand on this, are they? No, it's, as I said, India is like a major oil consumer, Saudi Arabia, all of the UAE, etc. They have big business interests in India. And don't forget that they're not exactly Democrats themselves, are they? So it's a kind of axis of evil in a sense. Right? So you have to, if you expose one of the other countries' human rights record, then someone's going to point, people in glass houses can't throw stones. It's a serious and... Sad topic, but it's been a great chat. Thank you so much, Salil. Thank you, Sami. Well, thanks for tuning in, guys. This episode was produced by Hayat Mongodin and Khaled Sultan. Sound designed by George Elwir. 
Our engagement producer is Ayel Malik. Our assistant engagement producer is Munira Dosari. And of course, our big boss, the executive producer, Omar Saleh. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>